welcome to a special edition of On the Rocks. As you can tell from my voice, I am not your usual host, Emily King. My name is Gotham Iyer, and I'm the head of corporate development here at Prospector, and we'll be hosting today's special edition. For today's episode, we have with us James Sykes, uranium geologist and the CEO of Baseload Energy, as well as the CEO of Metal Energy, both companies listed on the TSXB. James brings 10 years of Athabasca Basin uranium exploration and discovery experience, most notably from prominent roles for NextGen Energy's Aero Deposit, and having provided invaluable work on Hathor's Rough Rider deposits. James has been involved with the discovery of over 500 million pounds of U308 in the Athabasca Basin. Most recently, his team at Baseload was responsible for the near-surface high-grade uranium Accio deposit discovery. James, that's a lot of discoveries. Welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me, Gotham. Yeah, it is. It is quite a lot of discoveries. I'm fortunate to have been a part of so many in such a little time frame. Perfect. First things first, what are you drinking? I am drinking a classic drink. It's called water. I don't know if a lot of people know that, but uh, I'm drinking it out of a mug that was formed out of an ox, an ox horn. That, that's amazing. That's uh, that's a lot fancier than what I'm drinking here, which is just in a tiny yellow yellow can. It's sparkling water beverage, pineapple flavored. <laughs> I've got no flavoring, so you got me beat on that one. <laughs> there we go. There we go. James, my goal for today's conversation is to get the holistic picture of the uranium industry, to look at uranium from multiple angles. So, I mean, to kick this off, I'd like to talk about the very basics of uranium. You know, what is it and why is it important in our everyday lives? Uranium in its simplest sense is power. It's the fuel that goes into nuclear energy. And that's really what it's all about. And nuclear energy is what I humbly believe is the greenest and safest baseload energy power that we have available to all of human civilization. So it's a, it's a key uranium is a key ingredient for powering our ever our technologically increasing world moving forward Uh, i'd like to dive a little deeper into the whole clean energy space we do have some common misconceptions when it comes to uranium and nuclear energy in general could you elaborate on how uranium and and nuclear energy for that matter uh, is clean and has no co2 emissions straight up it's yeah, no CO2 emissions. And when you look at the track record of nuclear energy, it is very safe. Like you can count the amount of major incidents on one hand. Fukushima was, in essence, a not a flawed design on the reactor side, but it was a flawed location. If, that- if you had an oil refinery or even a, a solar field at at where the Fukushima site was, and that tsunami hit... All then you'd you'd have all this debris floating in in the ocean. You'd have all of this. You'd have oil spilled everywhere. Regardless of what was there, it was a disaster just waiting to happen. It just so happened that it was nuclear, and and now it it, it is what it is. That plant was apparently built before plate tectonics were even conceived. So that's something wow. else to consider. Is that now we've come a long way in about sixty years understanding what causes tsunamis in the first place. So now yeah. that now that we know tsunamis are directly related to to earthquakes and faults in the ocean, 
I would I would like to believe that nobody would be putting nuclear plants right on the right on the ocean fronts where tsunamis can can get them. They're safer inland. And then it, it's when you when you look at the the major incidences that that people always refer to. It's three of them: Fukushima, which we just discussed, Three Mile Island. No, nothing really happened there, and Chernobyl. Chernobyl was a flawed design. Everybody admits that in the industry. And we haven't gone back to that. So since Chernobyl, have there been any global meltdowns? Not that I can think of. Yeah, I've seen more pictures of, of burning uh, burning windmills that were just put up in the last five years than I have of any nuclear incident. So it's yeah, it, in that regards, it is definitely safe. And when you want to consider the green aspect of things, a nuclear power plant has a very small footprint and it, it only requires uranium as its primary fuel and not a lot of it whereas to go renewables or things like that huge footprints massive footprints so we're giving away the farming land or or other just other areas to put up renewable powers and the amount of the amount of metals that are required what's it, it and mining has gone up exponentially just to just to satisfy the renewable viewpoint uh, absolutely, and the, the, you know, I, I've read in, in many occasions that the energy density of a uranium pellet, for example, versus other sources of coal. I mean, you just need one pellet to power massive amounts of yeah. of, of things, as opposed to you know having 150 gallons of oil, you know, 20,000 cubic feet of natural gas. I've I've got something here actually, courtesy. I'm going to pitch can Alaska uranium here. Don't know oh, if there my, we go. my camera can pick that up. So this this square, if this cube was uranium oxide, UO2, if, if it were uranium oxide fuel, it would weigh three kilograms, which prevents the use of 400 tons of coal and saves 850 tons of CO2 emissions. It's also equivalent to 100 million kilowatt hours of carbon-free energy. So that's enough for the average home for 100 years. It prevents the use of a thousand barrels of oil. That is the power of nuclear energy. That's amazing. That's amazing. So, so why are we seeing more more nations, you know, adopt nuclear energy? And it, or are they? You know, do, do we you... are. Yes, most most certainly we are. We are seeing a a larger deployment of nuclear energy in today's today's world for sure china's increasing india's increasing the middle east have gotten their first their first reactors online europe's putting in more the states have recently announced that they're going to go they're they're going to put or they're going to look at establishing more nuclear fleet and they haven't done really anything since the 1970s so we're, we're seeing a larger build out now than we have in the last 50 odd years basically is some of the some some countries and some places are retiring aging aging reactors some of them are getting another extent for 30 odd years which again you know renewables don't have the track record the, the longevity that nuclear has uh, what's kept nuclear back for so long really it's it's that fear it, the people's uh, i don't want to sound rude but it's misconception about nuclear energy and people's fear about you know about a meltdown potential meltdowns and things like that a lot of those issues have been resolved with safer safer fuels safer technology 
you know, the amount of shutdown protocols they have to prevent any uh, any disasters happening are phenomenal. Like these are probably some of the safest technologies out there. And so we we've really come a long way in the whole nuclear side of things, just safety wise and even energy efficiency wise. That I think now the you know, nations are, are finally getting around to this because they know that we can't move, we can't meet these CO two climate accords yeah. that we have in place without nuclear energy. Oh, uh, absolutely. And with that increased demand, I mean, this is a pretty good segue into talking about price a little bit. Are, are we seeing increased prices? Yes, on all fronts, not just not just the uranium spot price, which is what people people typically track because yep. it's the easiest thing to find. But you're seeing higher contract prices being signed by the uh, by the producers signing with the utilities. The swoop price and the conversion prices those are increasing as well, and those are typically leading leading indicators to the to the price of uranium going up. Like every, everything cratered after Fukushima went down to multi-years low, um, basically a decade of very low prices that did not incentivize any mining whatsoever. Oh, well, there was, but you know, no, no new mining or even the, a lot of the producers curtailed their productions. So it created a scenario in which, yes, we're seeing, we're seeing more nuclear build out where the demand is the highest it has ever been. And yet the supply is really at some of the lowest it's ever been. And there's, there's a lag on the utility side of things to really get behind or get in front of everything and say, okay, we need to secure all of this fuel now. And so there it's building up this, this, uh, supply demand, this equilibrium that has, oh, it has a lot of ramifications back to the whole 2004, 2008 scenario. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, what was it back then? The prices went up to what? One, one forty dollars a pound yep. approximately 135 dollars a pound approximately i mean will we will we ever see those levels again uh you know at this rate i, I anticipate yes but i mean what would it take for uranium prices to go back there it, the the lack of supply it will be the main yep. catalyst and that's what, what we're seeing right now is we, we've had a few of the largest producing mines taken offline permanently Ranger in Australia is offline. Uh, why am I forgetting the one in in, uh, in Africa? But anyway, yeah, the African mine is taken offline, and there's nothing immediately coming online. Maybe Global Atomics, uh, maybe yeah. their deposit should should be able to online and uh, Boss Energy in in Australia with their ISR. But some of the ISRs can turn back on. You know, Chemicals looking at bringing on Macarthur River again, which. I've heard a number of people say, oh, it's never coming back online. I never, I never believe that because they've, they've got tons of resources down there and the infrastructure was already built. It didn't make sense not to go back into it. But yeah, MacArthur's coming back online. Uh, Cigar Lake is, is still pumping out a lot. Kazakhstan can can turn on more, but in it, the Kazakhstan point of view, they've also depleted the, the low-hanging fruit. So now everything they have to go after is... A little bit more costlier but they've still got plenty of, of uranium there but it's still not as much as what it was back in the heyday and in, in when everybody was producing in, in 2000 between 2005 2008 did a lot of producers and we're, we just don't have those levels back again 
No, oh, absolutely. Is, is there some sort of incentive price that needs to be reached for these mines to come back online? I keep hearing sixty dollars yeah. minimum. Anywhere from sixty to eighty dollars is a bare minimum. Some of these mines will even require require a hundred dollars minimum to come back online. But it you know it really depends on the the amount of volume and the amount of supply that can be fed with the with the operations that operate around that sixty to eighty dollar mark. And it's probably yep. on the higher end of things. Even, uh, even, even some of these Athabasca, even some of the Athabasca contracts I've seen, they've been upwards of seventy dollars. So it's a it's a good sound. I'm, I'm happy you mentioned the Athabasca basin because I'd like to dig a little deeper there. You know, when I think uranium, I think two things: the Athabasca basin here in Saskatchewan and Kazakhstan. Geologically speaking, are they different? And if so, how? Very much so. Yes, absolutely. Um, Athabasca just seems to be different from everything else in the entire world anyway. But it, Kazakhstan's all what we call ISR. It's all roll yep. front type of uranium. So it's it's uranium thi uh, thin encrustations in a sandstone. If people don't know what a sandstone is, you know, pretty sure everyone's walked on a beach. Just picture that sand that you're walking on being solidified so your feet so your feet don't squish in it but basically rock it still has that porosity to it so all the sand grains are touching and whatever porosity is in there that's where the uranium forms so with uh, with ISR you pump your fluid down to extract the uranium leaving all the sand grains intact and you recover it from a different well yeah the Athabasca is much different because we've ours are all structurally controlled and there are some other geological uh, features such as uh, redox traps and the unconformity and this and the amount of fluids that have been pumped through that area naturally but in the end they are all structurally controlled and what that has done has provided a, a fluid system to accumulate large concentrations of uranium which is why the Athabasca Basin is known as the world's the world's highest grade uranium jurisdiction by far the average, the average grade for an Athabasca deposit far exceeds the average global global grade of uranium deposits. And that's what makes it so lucrative. We consider consider Cigar Lake and MacArthur River. Yeah. Uh, back when MacArthur was mining, uh, when they first went down after the Pod 2, it, it had the highest average mined grades of any commodity really in the world. The, the UK, you, you can't even compare the, 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 the value of what they were mining versus you know versus high grade gold versus what Red Lake was mining at um, or Gold Corp is mining up at Red Lake uh, the the value of the uranium that comes out of Cigar Lake and MacArthur River is mind blowing there's yep. no other commodity in the world that comes close to their value absolutely and you know just as an example when we're talking about high grades of these these mines we're talking percentage points as opposed yeah. to tenths and maybe yeah. thousands of percentage points. So there, there's exactly. a border of magnitude difference when we're looking when at these 20, Yeah, 20% of the rock that you're mining is mineralized. That's a big <laughs> number. You know, that's 20% of a ton is all mineralization. Whereas you look at gold, gold reports as one gram per ton, which is extremely tiny. Yeah. To, put, to put a gram per ton into, per, into percentage, that's point what? Point zero 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 one. Something like that. Yeah, oh, it's not zero zero one, um, in in that order. <laughs> yeah, and and when we're talking about mining methods, 
do we typically see the conventional methods out in Saskatchewan? I know you mentioned ISR over in Kazakhstan. Why would someone choose ISR over the conventional open pit or underground methods? Yeah, of, of course there, there's, there's differences all the way across the board. The, so ISR is typically the, the cheapest mode of, of extracting uranium, so long as the porosity is there and so long as the, uh, the uranium grades are there. But if, like it's, it's a no, there's no, there's no underground disturbance with ISR really. Everything's done from surface. You put in an injection well, you put in a recovery well, all the fluids migrate through one up the other. So it, it's a pretty simplistic process, but you don't get the, you're not, you're not making a lot of uranium. You're not recovering a lot of uranium in a very quick time frame simply because the grades are typically lower in those deposits. You've got hard rock mining, which is conventional mining, open pit, underground mining in Africa, uh, in Russia, and uh, we we had it here in, in in northern Saskatchewan in the Athabasca Basin area. Now all of the original mines in in Athabasca were all open pits or underground mines, conventionally mined. It wasn't until we started migrating in towards the deeper parts of the sandstone where there's significant water infiltration that the 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 wheel had to be reinvented for mining. Uh, they, both Cigar Lake and MacArthur River are the only two underground mines in the actual Athabasca Basin itself. They both flooded twice because that basin is, as I mentioned, you know, with the beach example, there's water still in that basin and it's still flowing and quite a bit of it. So they both flooded twice and they've had to develop methodology to deal with that and what they've done is that if you're over bodies here they will actually put a freeze curtain over top in the sandstone so that that water from the sandstone cannot penetrate that freeze curtain and that's a 24-7 operation 365 days a year that they got to keep those those pumps going and really really keep the the ice that's not cheap but again when, when you're mining out 20 percent average grades it all makes sense and uh, ISR is being tried with Denison Mines, and I get uh, that's another good testimony to uh, two ways to look at mining deeper, uh, deeper deposits within the Athabasca Basin. All well, completely unconventional, but a lot of credit due to to Denison for for trying this methodology and making some good headway on it. Morano has been looking at a different type of mining methodology again, trying to avoid going underground in that sandstone and doing stuff from surface, and they call it saber, which is really jet boring, um, yeah, jet boring high grade uranium and, and trying to recover. You know, both the the ISR and the saber methodology are, are still in their their trial runs. There's nothing definitive out of them yet, but when you go back to the history of everything. Open pit mining is what has worked the best in the Athabasca Basin area. So, so our company is now trying to focus a little bit more on, I guess, the more near surface uh, deposit. I, I, I know, for example, baseload, you have your Athabasca 2.0 thesis. Uh, could you speak a bit to that? Yeah, I definitely could. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't speak for other companies, but just looking at at where people have staked there's still a lot of there's still a lot of um desire to explore within the sandstone and try and make discoveries there i i'm of the opinion that we have we haven't even scratched the surface of the amount of discoveries that have been made 
in the Athabasca area. Like, I think there's tons of uranium out there, absolutely wild amount, but you, you're going to have to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's just not my flavor of the day. We're going back to the old tried, tested, and true methodology and realizing that you've got a significant amount of overburden cover. So what the glaciers left behind that obscure all of your bedrock. And you could have hidden a lot of deposits underneath that. They're called blind deposits simply because you can't see them with, with at surface or any with any meaningful um, uh, geophysical survey. So radiometrics wouldn't pick these things up. You'd need to you'd need to run geophysics, come up with a target area, and then drill it off. But and that, and that, that's our approach. That's our Athabasca two approach. Is that we think there's a lot of near surface mineralization that has yet to be discovered that are all just waiting there underneath till underneath some of these swamps that that can prove to be a viable open pit deposit and we call that strategy Athabasca 2.0 really it's Athabasca 0.0 we've gone back to the roots of of mining not exploration and we seem to be the only company who have completely focused with with the sole intent to focus on on projects that are outside of the sandstone uh, absolutely. Now, as a CEO of a uranium exploration company and having discussed the supply demand issues, are you, are you seeing more capital flowing into the industry and, and specifically the uranium space? For sure. Three, we listed, Basel listed in 2020. Yeah. There was a lot of ground you could have staked back then. There were not a lot of participants in the whole uranium space. I would I would say that well, there are probably around fifty uranium companies globally and exploring and producing. Now there's about 120, so we have more than doubled in the last three years the the amount of uranium companies globally. Wow, wow. Um, what what about you know when when you're when you're trying to raise capital when you, when you're talking to the buy side um, funds or even retail for example. Are they, are they buying into the Athabasca 2.0 thesis? Are they, are they believers? Are they happy that you're going back, focusing on the basement rocks? Yes. Yes, they are. They, they really appreciate the strategy and the theory and the thought process behind it all. And with our, our discovery that we made, which we call Accio, we're trying to prove that thesis to be correct, that it. You know, you're not just making a discovery. You're making, you're discovering a mine. And yep. those, those type of discoveries as historically proven have gone from discovery into production within an average of six to 12 years. Whereas a lot of these, these underground deposits or yeah, I guess these deposits within the Athabasca themselves, some of them have been around since the sixties, seventies, eighties, even some of the more recent ones. So when you're reading off my bio there, when I am working for Hathor, that was discovered in 2008 with, you know, where is it now? It's still on the ground with absolutely no projection of moving it forward just because it was 200 meters the, underneath the underneath the sandstone. So it's it's too deep to do any sort of conventional mining there. You'd need to do a freeze or something else like Sabre or ISR. But what we've been doing with, uh, with our Accio discovery is moving it along quite nicely and very quickly. Our exploration costs are a fraction of what other people incur just uh -huh. because we're not drilling as deep and with mineralization being as shallow as 25 meters beneath the surface that really has open pit potential and to to 
they so so to dig out a pit you're not going down 100 meters and then start mining you're removing overburden you start mining right away that has a very quick very quick um cash generative situation it's a, it's a positive npv scenario with uh with a very quick return on 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 investment and basically even uh, you know low capex because we'd uh, we wouldn't build a mill ourselves uh, in theory that we would look to use the 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 key lake mill chemicals key lake mill so there's low low capital low capital costs low operating costs really make this a high margin project whereas again to go deeper in that sandstone you've got a lot of front end capital costs and your margins are not nearly as as broad no absolutely are you you know here at prospect we deal a lot with uh with numbers and, and, and analytics, are are you able to get more specific in terms of you know general capex numbers that we that we can see you know underground versus open pit? I can't. In, it's in unfortunate. I can't because I I don't know any of the the legitimate costs from a lot of these underground operations or or the historic okay. operations, and even ourselves, uh, we we've got nothing for we've got nothing solid. You know, we, we've tried to crunch numbers internally without third-party reviews. And each, each time we do, we keep coming across less than $100 million Canadian for, for a CapEx to get all of this going. And, and when you put that, like the biggest cost is the road. The road's going to yes. cost, you know, what, a million dollars per kilometer, let's say. And we've got about, let's say we, we put in 40 kilometers road. There's $40 million. What's after that? Machinery? Uh, yeah. you know, that's not at $60 million. Um yeah, it's 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 pretty straightforward and pretty easy for for what we want to do. Again, which is why we think that the uh, the return on investment is extremely fast. We can we can make this happen. We can we can we can turn all of this around into a cash generating situation very quickly. Yeah, you know, what, what's what's a hundred what's a hundred million dollars equivalent to in uranium? If if you've got a contract price of seventy dollars a pound uranium, that's what. One and a half, one and a half million pounds of uranium USD is is one hundred and five dollars at seventy dollars a pound. There's your there's your capex paid for with with one point five million pounds. That's it. Yeah. You don't need these. You don't need these massive hundred million pound deposits or two hundred million pound deposits. And it's all it's all a business scenario. And when the margins are high and the return on investment is very quick, that's what makes sense. That's what generates cash immediately. No, that, that that that's a very good point. Um, what is it? I mean, what kind of magnitude of costs are we talking then when we're when we're dealing with nuclear reactors and, and like the energy side of things? It, 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 that, I'm guessing that is a massive amount of capital, and, and that's what might be taking a while for all these countries to start building their own reactors. The enterprise. Yeah, around 2006 to 2010, there were a number of large-scale projects. So we're talking, we're talking gigawatt uh, power power generating um, uh, nuclear utilities, not megawatts, gigawatts, right. and their their cost overruns were just so high. Everything I, I remember one project. I think they they underestimated costs by by 50% or 100%. And when you're dealing with billions of dollars worth of investment, tens to 13 billions of dollars, and someone comes back and says, oh, well, you know, we significantly 
didn't price everything out properly, and it's going to cost us another 10 to $13 billion, makes people think. And that's, that yeah. was probably the biggest problem that really hindered nuclear deployment. But we've, the industry's changed. There's been a lot of, there's been a lot of innovation in, in the industry, looking at small modular reactors or micro modular reactors. The technology has been around for a long time because we've got nuclear submarines, just nobody really put two and two together. But now that we are seeing these, the idea is that uh, small modular reactors, SMRs, and micro modular reactors, MMRs, they can be deployed much quicker and more cost effectively. And once they pick up, once they pick up some steam and get get processing, then you can start to incur some um, some what do you call that uh, development or um, uh, production line. You get you can get some production line reduction costs just because you start streamlining everything. So that's that's the the benefit of what SMRs and MMRs provide. Plus there's plus they're incorporating all of the new technologies so nuclear um, nuclear resistant fuels that are well I guess resistant to um, to meltdowns and things like that and avert all of that you know the amount of safety features that are put in. But these things are the theory behind all of these is that they can deploy be deployed rapidly. They can be deployed within um, jurisdictions that are very remote or around around cities and other communities you can generate a lot of you can generate a lot of electricity from nuclear energy another feature that seems to be seems to be of benefit to an smr or or from people deploying smrs is that they do produce a lot of heat as well and that heat is now being looked at as as another alternative for supplying oh, nearby communities or 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 even industries with additional heat. Oh, that's interesting. That that's very innovative. Now, I guess one thing we haven't really spoken about when it comes to nuclear energy is uh, is waste. Um, how much waste is generated, and then where do we store all this waste? There's not a lot of waste generated. No. <laughs> and again, like there we go. The whole people's another... fear. No, oh, it's crazy. It's what yep. all of the nuclear waste in the world can fit within a football field or something, or maybe three football fields. It's I read nothing. that as well. <laughs> yeah, that's no, but that's that's the reality of the situation. Yeah. That is the truth behind it. That it, it, it's not a technology that that generates a lot of waste. Even some of these reactors or or, or some of the some of the innovations that were that the nuclear industry is looking at is reusing some of that waste into additional nuclear reactor, and some of it, some of it is applied. So we can, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle type of idea. What's better than that? I, would, uh, I grew up on that with yeah, Triple yeah. R. Oh, not the so, most sustainable than that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it, it's yeah, the nuclear waste is not a big thing. A number of countries across the globe do have their own nuclear uh, nuclear waste depositories. There's even some new companies. I forget the name, but they're they're looking at doing deep underground drill holes basically oh. that would put the waste back you know in a very deep in a very deep drill hole. so there's there are some advancements on the the waste waste preservation side or the waste security side of things as well but again when when you're looking at such a small scale you put all the garbage dumps around the world together and they will be far they would they would eclipse hey. the amount of nuclear waste that has been deployed i would almost guarantee you you can take all the waste from the from the renewable industry, from the solar panels that go into all the garbage dumps, 
uh, all the wind turbines. I bet you any money you put all of those together in, out of the last 10 years and you'd have more waste in those than you would from the nuclear industry since its inception. Almost guarantee it. And, That's amazing. You know, no, nobody talks about nobody talks about solar panels having selenium in them. And if you've ever yep. read about selenium going into your drinking water, that's a big no-no. That's <laughs> a very toxic element. Absolutely. But it happens. You know, a lot of a lot of solar panels have selenium in them. Where do they end up when they're done? Right, right in the waste pile. Mm -hmm. So now, what's what's really bad out there? And that's yeah, no, misconception I, 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 and people's people's refusal to just simply have a have a have a seat, have a sip, and just think things through. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I I think the nuclear industry gets a gets a bad rep. Uh, well, James, I don't want to take up too much of your time, uh, but you know, just to just to kind of wrap things up, what are you up to this summer? What's your focus? We're going to drill. Baseload is going to drill, drill, drill. We love Accio. Accio is it has a lot of open open areas to increase mineralization we've got some other target areas where we think there could be additional mineralization so new pods being formed and we also want to do a little bit of inf infill drilling and definition drilling because we want to really again move this along so we can get to a resource estimate once we have that then we can really start putting some numbers to to paper and trying to figure out the the feasibility behind everything that we have and just I'm, I'm adamant about moving this forward. So yeah, this year, 10,000 meter drill program, which is uh -huh. half of what we drilled last year. Again, that's the benefit of our exploration strategies that we don't need a lot of drills. We don't need a lot of meters. Uh -huh. So it's it's much more cost effective to explore for these type of deposits. And yeah, for hopefully four months of drilling will will keep us going for, for the 10,000 meters. And then we'll have results. Perfect. That sounds like a busy summer. If if there's one thing that you wish for in the uranium space, you know, or mining space in general, what is it? There's no one thing. There's so many things. You know what? I would, I I, I like seeing what I'm seeing now. Two years ago, you mentioned nuclear energy, and people would have spat in your face. Yeah. And now those same people you mentioned nuclear energy, they they'll turn around and say, "Oh, I've always loved nuclear energy." But I, I like the idea that people are, are finally coming around and supporting it. You know, if something else happens in the nuclear industry, they're all going to turn right back and spit in your face. Uh -huh. but so long as so long as that that you know people are there now, hopefully that they will hopefully that they will continue to really immerse themselves in and just understand that this is our path forward. You know, we've I've yeah. seen a lot of money being funded into into technologies that don't make sense and have never proven to work uh, not not to pumped on on fusion at all but billions billions of dollars have gone into fusion when we've got fission nuclear energy at our disposal and we walked away from it if we put the same amount of investments into a viable known operating nuclear source instead of something that we're trying to develop for, for myths and dreams, yeah. we wouldn't be having these issues that we're having right now. We wouldn't be having, you know, so we wouldn't be having these CO2 emissions or these greenhouse gas okay. emissions that we're worried about. We wouldn't have these energy security issues that we're all going on about and seeing blackouts happen in cities across multiple countries. 
we'd all be living in a world where you can turn on the light whenever the heck you want and it, yeah. it would be there that sounds like a wonderful world it I'm, does I'm, doesn't it I'm, I'm pro pro uranium very bullish on uranium uranium is the future uh, thanks James thanks a lot for hopping on with us today uh, on the rocks podcast uh, very very good learning experience uh, a lot of great knowledge you have given us about uranium and nuclear energy in general so thank you again and hope to keep in touch thanks Gotham it's been a pleasure absolutely absolutely